Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Ansaro, Senior Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. If you follow our podcast or work in healthcare, you know that fall is a busy time for conferences. And what would a conference be without at least one session on big data? Today, we're speaking with Michael Gianfrido, Assistant Professor at Geisinger's Center for Pharmacy Innovation and Outcomes in Pennsylvania. Mike earned his PhD from Wilkes University and his PhD from the Mayo Clinic, and his research aims to advance the science and the practice of evidence-based healthcare. One of the ways he is doing that is, you guessed it, through the use of big data. The healthcare system has been an early adopter of health technology and now is using big data in different ways and Mike is presenting at the American College of Clinical Pharmacy's annual meeting in New York City in a few days on this topic of big data. Mike, thank you for joining us today on Managed Carecast. It's great to be here. So to start off, what got you interested in big data in pharmacy, and why are clinical pharmacists concerning themselves with this topic? Well, I'm interested in big data, uh, like I think most clinical pharmacists are, because I can see the potential to have a positive impact on patient care. So imagine being able to predict which patients will respond to a medication, which will have a drug interaction, uh, who's, who's going to be non-adherent. Um, all of these types of things, big data has the potential to help inform uh, those questions. And so that, that's why, you know, I'm interested in big data, and I think that that's why clinical pharmacists uh, are interested in big data as well. And how are you defining big data? So there are many ways to define big data. Uh, a common approach is to discuss the three Vs of big data, volume, vo- velocity, and variety. Volume represents the vast amount of data involved. So studies of big data can involve millions, if not billions, or more data points. So contrast this with traditional, quote, traditional studies, where you might have 100 patients, and you're only looking at a handful of variables, things like age, sex, race, you know, potentially your exposure of interest and your outcome. With big data, we can look at hundreds of variables. We can look at, again, millions of data points. So it's a much bigger volume of data that we're dealing with. The second V is velocity, and this represents the speed at which data can be generated, collected, analyzed, and acted upon. We now have the ability to collect data and act on it in real time. So think about, for example, uh, if we were going to look at a patient's attitude towards a, a certain medication. Well, we can do a social media analysis and collect your tweets real time and analyze patient's response to a new medication coming out or policy uh, response to a new medication coming out or or something happening. That can all happen now in real time and it can inform care. So potentially a more relevant patient care example is think about insulin pumps or other smart devices. We can very quickly understand what a patient's situation is. So in this case, their blood sugar and then we can respond to that. So that data can be sent to a physician's office, it can go to the patient's phone, and they can make decisions based on that data in real time. Finally, the third V, variety, 
represents the wide array of formats and sources of data that can be accessed and used for decision making. So it could be structured or unstructured data. Um, by structured, I'm talking about those data fields, for example, in an EHR that can easily be pulled out. They're not free text. They're not free text fields. There's something like age where you put in a number and you can easily find and pull out that number on the back end of the data. We can have images. You can have video. Um, so, for example, you know, echocardiograms or uh, ECGs or CTs. All of those things can be used as part of big data. Documents, lab reports, lab values, clinic notes. You can use all of that type of data um, when you're doing things with big data. But perhaps the most important component of any definition of big data is the tremendous value that it can bring in managing patients as well as uh, populations, in addition to contributing to advancing research and uh, operational needs uh, of the healthcare system. But finally, beyond these conceptual definitions, big data can encompass other terms which may be more familiar uh, to potentially the practicing pharmacist. For example, things like routinely collected data. This, this encompasses things like electronic health record data. So you'll be reading a study and they might say, oh, we use routinely collected data. That's electronic health record data. That could be big data. Secondary data or observational data. When we talk about cohort studies, these large cohort studies, that in a sense can be big data. It's just a function of, again, are you looking at 100 patients or are you looking at a million patients? Or real world data. Again, that falls with the electronic health record data. It's coming from the real world. We're not doing a randomized trial. Um, and again, most randomized trials have very uh, relatively few participants and few data points uh, compared to, again, some of these large database studies that we can do with thousands or millions of patients. You mentioned free text and electronic health records. Is that a stumbling block for a lot of health systems, do you think, in terms of pulling that information out to make it usable? Oh, absolutely. So as I mentioned, your free text is that kind of unstructured data. So with structured data, someone has taken the time on the back end to create a field that says, for example, age or sex or race. And there's, there's, a, there's a limited number of options that you can choose from. And, you know, that's pre-programmed in. And so it's very easy, um, technically speaking, to pull that data out of the database, in this case, your, your EHR database. But with the free text data, how do, you, how do you pull that out in a specific field and analyze it? Because if I write a note, you know, I, doctor, you know this is Dr. Jean Frito, and I'm seeing Mrs. Jones, and she's 69 years old and has diabetes, et cetera, et cetera, there's not an easy way um, traditionally to pull that data out of the EHR to find out about our patient populations, about what they're doing. But one of the techniques to deal with and analyze big data uh, is called machine learning. And one, one specific type of machine learning is called natural language processing. And using this technology, we can go and look at those free te text notes and identify certain patterns or certain things in the data using natural language processing. So, for example, there's a colleague of mine looking at um, utilizing natural language processing to identify social influences of health in the medical record. So, social influences of health uh, are things like uh, socioeconomic status, 
food insecurity, stress, things like that, that are able, you know, they're able to influence a person's health, but they're not something that we routinely document in a structured field. It's something that, you know, the doctor may talk about it with the patient, and they may document it in the notes, but it's not something that goes in a structured field. So using natural language processing, we can pull those concepts out of the free text notes, and then depending on how you use it, use it to inform care. How common is that nowadays, do you think, in most health systems? So I would say that the use of machine learning algorithms and using natural language processing is not yet common in most healthcare systems. And I, I would argue that the main reason for this is that it requires a specialized expertise. And so utilizing big data requires uh, significant investments in infrastructure, and one of those pieces of infrastructure is the expertise to manage and understand that data. So again, not only do we have a large volume of data, so you have to invest in the servers and the other things to actually store the data, but then you need specialized personnel, data scientists, statisticians, informaticians, to conduct those very specialized analyses, those machine learning algorithms, those, that natural language processing, and it may require specific equipment or software that some healthcare systems might not have. So there's a lot of infrastructure and background work that goes into utilizing these things um, that, that make it difficult. Um, and I just want to mention another piece is the, the interoperability of systems. So we talk about the EHR as one place to house data, but sometimes in a healthcare system, they'll have a separate vendor for their their uh, radiology images or their lab values or other pieces of data that might be useful for patient care. And you need to figure out the interoperability between those different pieces within a healthcare system, but also across healthcare systems. So many patients see many different providers. So people who go to the VA might also have an outside primary care provider. They might also see different specialists. And so an individual person may go to three or four or many different healthcare systems depending on their location. And how do we pull in all of that data and use it? So those are some of the challenges of, of the infrastructure and, and why a lot of healthcare systems might not be using uh, big data, at least to its uh, greatest potential currently. I've been thinking about this a little bit in terms of the healthcare workforce because, as you know, there's expected to be shortages of certain medical specialties, nurses, home healthcare aides. As the population ages, where do you see the healthcare system going in terms of a very technical, specialized workforce that doesn't even touch a patient? Is that being talked about? It's definitely being talked about in, in some circles. I think, I think we have a, a while to go to build the technological capacity and the, and the workforce to do that. So as I said, you need a specialized personnel to kind of build and maintain these sort of, um, these sort of algorithms and this sort of infrastructure. But I think it's important to remember that um, while technology and big data can help facilitate the care that we provide patients and, and may even in the future be able to help diagnose and treat patients based upon millions or billions of observations. And so we can predict 
as how a specific patient will respond to a specific drug or which therapy will be best for a patient based upon their, their personal characteristics, their biological characteristics, their genetic characteristics. Um, there's still that human aspect to healthcare and how we deliver that care and how we truly care for an individual. So I think the technology will help facilitate and may help make up for some of that workforce shortage, but I think there's always going to be a need for healthcare professionals to truly um, care for a patient. Is there a misunderstanding about what big data is or is not? I ask because sometimes as an editor, I see a lot of different press releases, and I think sometimes some of the publicity writers are confusing the term. Yeah, I think I think there is a, a misunderstanding about big data. I think it's one of those buzzwords that people say, "Oh, big data, big data." So as I mentioned earlier, big data can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so I don't think what's so important is the misunderstanding of conceptually what big data is. I think everybody touches different pieces of it, whether it's the big volume or the big variety or velocity, et cetera. Um, but I think the, the real misunderstanding is, is what it can and can't do. So big data is not a panacea. It won't solve every problem the healthcare system is facing. So like you mentioned, it's not going to necessarily solve the, the shortage. Um, you know, we're still going to need healthcare providers. But what it can do, it can make the existing healthcare providers more efficient so we can see more people, so that the, the need uh, of people for healthcare providers uh, can be met with the existing population of, of healthcare providers. So it can inform many problems, but users of big data really need to be aware of the limitations. And I already mentioned some challenges with the infrastructure, but really need to be aware of you know, how valid is this data that we're working with? And so most sources of big data are not created for, you know, research purposes. They're created for billing purposes. And so even, even the EHRs, if you say, oh, this is created for a clinical purpose, well, it's really created for billing purposes. And errors in data entry are common. Um, so we took a look just, just before this, this podcast at what, what the top five heights are in our electronic health record system. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that apparently in Geisinger, there's an individual who's 985 feet tall. Um, <laughs> and, and that's not uncommon. Um, we have people who are both alive and dead at the same time in our database. Now, that's not to say that, you know, when a, when a person comes into the clinic, you know, we're going to make assumptions based on them being 900 feet tall that error is obviously going to be caught and corrected. But at some point in time, somebody in our system accidentally entered that a person was 900 feet tall. Um, there's ways to address that and, and create systems which catch that. But if you don't create those systems, then you're not going to catch those errors and you're going to be making assumptions based upon wrong data. And so it's the classic garbage in, garbage out. If you have bad data going in, if you run machine learning algorithms or other things on it without proper validation, without proper cleaning, without proper checking, the, the answers you're going to get out are not going to be accurate. Additionally, um, besides the accuracy of the data itself, if you're going to use billing codes, for example, to identify people with um, diabetes or high blood pressure or any condition you can think of, um, the accuracy of these codes vary widely depending on which constellations of codes 
you use to identify people, but very few are 100% accurate. So you're always going to be either missing people who have the disease or inaccurately classifying someone as having the disease when they don't. So you have to, you have to think about those things. Um, another danger, especially in our current EHR environment, is that clinicians, pharmacists, physicians, and otherwise are overburdened by the amount of documentation that we have. I believe it's estimated that for every you know, hour in clinic, uh, physicians have to do two hours of, of documentation work. Uh, and so we, we, we try to become efficient. And how do we fix that? Well, we can create smart forms and they auto-populate and it helps blow in all this information. And so you don't have to type it in, so that saves time. But if we create a, a template or a form, it might not be accurate to an individual person's scenario. And so if the clinician doesn't go back and fix that to be accurate for the person, again, that's wrong data. Um, another example is medication history. So pharmacists will recognize that uh, patients' medication lists are not always accurate. And so if we were doing a study or we were trying to create an algorithm to look at which medication is best or what can cause side effects and we're using that medication data, if that medication data is not accurate, we're not going to get an accurate answer at the end of it. Um, similarly, uh, you know, we often miss things like over-the-counter medications or herbals or creams. And so if we're trying to look at, you know, what's the effect of a certain herbal medication, if we don't normally collect that in clinical practice, you know, we're not going to be able to see, you know, how that's affecting the, the health of our population. Uh, two other things I wanted to mention about validity is that all data is at risk of bias, and the data that we routinely use for uh, big data purposes is especially at risk of bias. And so uh, we're not randomizing patients to exposure or not. And so, you know, there could be a selection bias involved or there could be other confounders. So we can't we can't adjust for or control or, you know, otherwise adjust for things that we don't measure. And so, again, if we're not collecting patients' socioeconomic status or insurance or um, relationship status, if these are variables that are important to predicting uh, whatever outcome is you're looking at, if we don't collect it, it can't be in the model and it, and it can't inform that decision-making. You know, without that data, we're not making as accurate predictions as possible, and, and the relationships that we're looking at could be confounded or otherwise biased. An important note here is that when we're looking at big data, the results that come out are not necessarily causal. So when we do these studies, we can find correlations between variables. We find that patients with this constellation of symptoms or this exposure has this outcome. But unless we validate that, we can't say that it's because of this. There's that causal link is, is hard to determine. And so you need to remember just because, oh, we did, a, we did a study with a million patients and we found this, without properly validating that, we can't make that causal link and, and you should be very cautious about changing practice unless you've looked at the validity of the data and the relationships. And that adds another layer of, of time, I guess, to do that. Exactly. So, you know, you can get the, the experts and they can, you know, if you have the right infrastructure and you can pull out your data, you can throw all the data in a statistical model. But like I said, 
you know, it's garbage in, garbage out. But if you don't understand the epidemiology of what's happening, of, of the science behind whatever it is you're looking at, you could be making false assumptions if you don't understand, you know, the whole picture. And so the, the classic example in epidemiology is they looked at, you know, the relationship between, you know, alcohol consumption and lung cancer. And lo and behold, they found that people who drank more had a higher incidence of lung cancer, but they didn't adjust for the fact that those people smoked. And when you adjusted for the fact that people who drank more also smoked more, that the smoking was really what explained the lung cancer. And so, again, if there's that factor that we're not measuring or we haven't thought about, you know, it could be affecting the, the results that we're getting out of the end of, of the algorithm. Um, so you have to think about those sort of things um, when you're interpreting big data. You know, oftentimes the actual algorithm itself when you're doing machine learning can be opaque, and so how the model deals with those can sometimes be unclear. But you have to think, okay, do we have all clinically relevant items in the model? What's interesting is that uh, a colleague of mine just informed me that they were looking at uh, some data in the heart failure space and identified that what we thought was clinically important when looked at in a machine learning model might not be as clinically important. Is machine learning helping to inform value-based care where you work? We, we use it in a variety of ways at Geisinger. So as I mentioned, you know, we have data on approximately 2 million patients with uh, over 500 million lab values and 800 million vital signs. And through our MyCode Community Health Initiative, we've sequenced over 140,000 individuals with an average of 16 years of follow-up in our system. And we've built up our infrastructure so that we can utilize this data to learn about our population and directly impact the health uh, of our patients. So specifically, there's a, couple of, there's a couple of examples I can give. So uh, patients with diabetes in our system, we have set up uh, an infrastructure where we can identify our population of patients with diabetes and we can see, okay, who's, who's above goal? Who has an A1C above eight? And then we can target those patients for intervention by our medication therapy disease management pharmacists. We can look at our patients uh, and see whether they're on the right medications, right? So are, are our patients with diabetes, are they on ACE inhibitors? Are our patients with heart failure on evidence-based beta blockers? Um, you know, are, are our patients with hepatitis C uh, getting the right lab values and being followed up appropriately, et cetera? Um, so we use it to kind of inform, you know, population health, um, but we're also exploring ways in which it can inform uh, an individual patient by identifying the likelihood of that person benefiting from a certain intervention. So Brandon Fornwalt, Dr. Brandon Fornwalt and his team uh, is looking at patients with heart failure and looking at can we predict their one-year mortality and can we predict if we give them certain interventions like ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, et cetera, can we predict which patients are going to benefit from those interventions and use that information to specifically target the people who are at the highest risk of one-year mortality and those that have the highest potential to benefit from, for example, a pharmacist intervention and getting an ACE inhibitor, a beta blocker, et cetera. 
Um, and so those are just a couple of examples of how we, we utilize it um, at Geisinger to improve uh, patient and population health. I'm wondering, is there someone at uh, Geisinger who, whose job it is to explain this to patients? I'm thinking of a patient who is not going to be a good candidate for an intervention and maybe they don't have a high level of health literacy and all they hear in their head probably is a computer's telling me that I shouldn't take the drug, it won't help me, but I want it because otherwise I might get worse. I mean, how do staff communicate these issues now to patients? Are you involved in that at all? So, you know, that's a great question. Um, and let me, let me be clear. So those current efforts, um, they're, you know, the, the efforts with the, with the um, risk and benefit of the interventions for heart failure, that's a, that's a trial right now, and that, that's, that's going on where we're examining what happens when we, we do pharmacist-based care guided by this algorithm, um, you know, pharmacist-based care without the algorithm, and, and, and then, you know, looking at among the people who have the algorithm, you know, are they the high benefit or the low benefit group? And this is on clinicaltrials.gov, um, and I can follow up with the, the link. But, but basically, it's not, we're not communicating to patients right now, the machine said this, the machine said that. You know, I, I can tell you that, you know, that back to what I said earlier, you know, that's where you need the human element in, mm -hmm. in healthcare and helping patients in, interpret this data. And so, you know, what, what, you know, what we are doing, though, is through our MyCode, you know, so maybe I'll talk about our MyCode Community Health Initiative. And so through MyCode, uh, again, we've sequenced over 140,000 individuals. And with these individuals, we've used, uh, we've, we've sequenced their DNA. We've got their whole exome sequencing. And if they have an actionable variant, so that's, that's a, a genetic change that we've identified uh, as being harmful and that we can do something about it. So you might have heard of, of Huntington's and, and you know that right now we don't have really any cure that we can do for that. So we're not returning those types of results. But for things there, there's actionable results. So for example, uh, the BRCA gene. So those are genes which increase your risk of, for example, breast cancer. So there's certain things that people with these genes can do to help um, prevent um, breast cancer. So there, there's certain uh, medications that they can try or some individuals can can choose to do, for example, a, a double mastectomy. Um, you know, we have genetic counselors who, who report, uh, or I'm sorry, who return these results to individuals and they talk to them about what the implications are and, and what the results mean and all those sort of things. So in that sense, we have, we have a team of people who are specifically trained to return these results to patients. And I suspect that as we use more big data in healthcare and we utilize these machine learning algorithms is that we have to work with our healthcare workforce to not only teach them what the, what the data means as, from a healthcare provider perspective, but how do we communicate these results to patients? And, and I worked with uh, Dr. Victor Montori at the Mayo Clinic to develop tools to facilitate patient-clinician communication. And the way we used to talk about it when we would use traditional risk models, so like the ASCVD risk score, we would really talk about it as a personalization issue. So, you know, we'd say out of what we, we, we've looked at your, you know, your, all of your, your clinical factors, we've, we've taken these important data points about you, and out of 100 people like you, your risk of this event over the next 
10 years is, is you know, 20%. Or if you looked at, you know, out of 100 people, 80 of them would not have the event and 20 of them would have the event. So there's ways that we can communicate this information and this risk or, or whatever it happens to be uh, to patients. I just think that as we translate this information from research to practice, we need to be aware of, again, how that information is received and perceived. So I think that's a great point. Interesting. Is there anything else you want listeners to know about? Uh, I think we I think we covered a, a lot of, of ground today. Um, I think you know just another note on on the the cautions uh, of using big data. So I'm being a little bit of a, a wet blanket here. I think big data has a lot of potential, but we have to think about those those concerns with validity that I mentioned before, um, but also think about the applicability. So. If, a, if an algorithm is made, made in one population, so let's say we make something at Geisinger, you have to be careful of, well, is this going to be applicable in, in Philadelphia or New York City or other places? A lot of times it may be, but for certain specific questions, it might not be. Um, so that, that's one, one aspect. So, you know, for example, if, if race was an important factor in a specific algorithm, uh, Geisinger does not have a large uh, population of non-white individuals. So the model wouldn't know, you know, wouldn't be able to, again, account for that at a, at a high level if, as if the model was made in a more diverse population. And that's just a simple example. But you need to think about that. Is, you know, is this model going to be valid in my population? And then why or why not? And you can't assume, oh, well, we, we have a more diverse population, therefore it's not going to work, but that needs to be tested and, and, and validated. Um, the other thing is the implementation. The implementation is huge. So we can create the best algorithm in the world, but if it's not transferable or translatable to another healthcare system, then, then, then it's really only helping Geisinger's patients. Um, so how do, we, how do we make it implemented not only into the electronic health record or the data systems of, of another healthcare system, but how do we, again, implement returning this information into the workflow? Um, how do we change it so that we understand what the risk and benefit is for a specific patient and get them to be automatically triaged to medication therapy management? How do we build a culture where big data is used and accepted? So if I, if I went to a pharmacist and I said, oh, I have this new great tool, well, why do I need this tool? I do a great job of taking care of my patients now. And so there needs to be building that culture and that, that understanding and that trust of big data. But like I said, you should be appropriately skeptical. Um, and then again, just considering, you know, this patient that's in front of you, not patients that were like this patient previously. And so, you know, no matter what the algorithm spits out, you know, you need to think about what's best for this patient in this moment right now. And so I would, you know, say that, I, again, I think the the value of big data can be huge, and it can really, really help us improve the care of patients, but we need to think about what's best for the patient in front of me and, you know, not blindly trust an algorithm or, or you know, something that came from big data. That's a great point because it's always a human being sitting in front of you, and I guess there's, there are always outliers, I suppose, that as for all the reasons you mentioned, the algorithm is not, may not capture. Exactly, and it's it's about it's it's not 
again, with, with anything in healthcare, it's not, it's not about what the guideline says, it's not what the algorithm says, it's what's, what's best for the patient. And so even if the guideline says, this patient should be on this medication, if that medication doesn't work for the patient intellectually, practically, you know, contextually in their, in their life, then it's, it's not gonna work. So thinking about the work of being adherent. And, you know, I, I always tell this story that I was on rotation and we had a patient come in who had diabetes, had very high blood sugar values, and they had this person was on insulin, and the and the the blood sugar wasn't going down. And eventually, it came out that this individual was homeless. And uh, you might know that most insulins, if not all of them, uh, have to be refrigerated. Uh, and so, you know, this person's insulin was not working as well because they didn't have a place to store their insulin, for example. So it didn't make, it didn't make practical sense for this person to be on insulin, even though it might have been the best therapy given their, their, their blood sugar levels. And so you have to, again, think about those human pieces of the equation. Great point. Well, thank you so much for being with us today on the podcast. We really appreciate it. And um, we hope the conference goes really well uh, in New York City when you talk there. Thank you. Uh, I look forward to it, and uh, I hope this podcast was uh, useful to the listeners. Thank you very much. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To follow us on Twitter, go to AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.